I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. Um, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book this morning, we come to John 14, verse 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through uh, 17. And the title of the message today is A Greater Ministry While Jesus is Away. A Greater Ministry While Jesus is Away. Some remarkable things are said by Jesus in the passage we're going to look at today regarding you, even. And uh, we're going to get to discover what those amazing things are that Jesus has said. Robert Murray McShane is a name that might be familiar to uh, some of you. I've quoted from him from time to time in my messages. He actually died at the age of 29. Uh, in the mid-1800s, yet he had an impactful ministry uh, during his short life, a ministry that bears fruit to this very day. For a few years, he pastored a church in Scotland and was one of the godliest men ever to pastor any congregation. But in 1839, Robert Murray McShane took some time away from his congregation in Scotland And he traveled to Israel to explore the possibility of evangelizing Jews in Israel. While he was there in Israel, he entrusted his congregation in Scotland to the care of a man named William Burns. And it was under the ministry of William Burns that a remarkable revival began to sweep over McShane's congregation while he was away. Day after day, the people of the church were meeting for prayer and the hearing of the word, and literally hundreds of people were being converted to Christ. Meanwhile, Robert Murray McShane was in Israel, and he had fallen ill in Israel, extending his time away from his flock even longer. When McShane returned to his home church in November of 1839, he was amazed at what he beheld. He wrote, and I quote, everything here I have found in a state better than I expected. The night I arrived, I preached to such a congregation as I never saw before. I do not think another person could have gotten into the church, and there was every sign of the deepest and tenderest emotion, unquote. I wonder how I would respond if upon my departure, revival broke out at Cornerstone and I returned to discover a very different church. Would I feel jealous of whomever it was that God used in my place? Wonderfully, Robert Murray McShane showed none of such pettiness. He wrote these words, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. I begin on this note this morning because on one level, McShane's attitude is the very attitude that we see Jesus exhibiting in our passage Today, as he begins to hand over the blessings and 
the privileges of ministry to his disciples and preparation for his departure from them and from this earth. And he actually predicts in our passage today that his disciples, including us, will do greater works than he was able to accomplish during his earthly ministry. To appreciate our passage today, we should remember that Jesus is reaching the very end of the most profitable three years of ministry in the history of the world. And the disciples have been with Jesus the whole way, seeing all that Jesus has done and hearing the the amazing teaching of truth that Jesus has been delivering And yet right now here in John 14, Jesus is one day away from his crucifixion. And he's telling his disciples that he's going to be going away from them to a place where they cannot right now follow him. And in John 14, as we saw two weeks ago, Jesus is talking about going to his father's house to prepare a place in heaven for his disciples. And he's promising them that one day he's going to come back and take them to be with him so that they might then be with him where he is forever. I'm sure that when the disciples heard Jesus talking about going away from them to prepare a place for them in heaven, that they were thinking something along the lines of, we really appreciate that Jesus, but we'd honestly just rather you stay here with us. Because life is going to be pretty lame without you until you come back and take us to be with you. But what Jesus goes on to reveal to his disciples in our passage today is that their life is going to be anything but lame after his departure For he isn't just going away from them to prepare a place for them in heaven. He also plans to go away from them so that they might now really take off in ministry and do greater things than what they actually saw Jesus do. Which means that their greatest days of life and ministry still lie ahead of them after Jesus' departure from this earth. The way we're going to break down our study of the passage this morning, as you can see on the hard copy of the notes, if you were able to grab them, is we're going to observe five truths that Jesus gives to his disciples to encourage them with a vision of the great days of ministry ahead of them. Five truths that Jesus gives to his disciples to encourage them with the vision of the great days of ministry ahead of them. And the first point, let's word it this way. My ministry, Jesus says to them and to us, should point you to my unity with the Father despite our separation. And hopefully you'll know what we mean by that as we unpack this briefly Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, my ministry over the last three years should point you to my unity with my father in heaven, 
despite the fact that he is in heaven and I am here on earth. Now, we ended with verses 10 and 11 two weeks ago, but I want us to sweep back through these verses as we begin today uh, because they're relevant to the point that Jesus unfolds in these verses to come. In verse 10, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. As you will recall from a couple weeks ago, Philip had said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus replied by telling Philip, that showing them the Father is exactly what Jesus has been doing over the previous three years of his ministry through his every word and work. But Philip's question has set Jesus up nicely for what Jesus wants to talk about next. For he wants his disciples to understand how his own situation over the previous three years has been very much like what his disciples' situation will be going forward. How so? Well, during the three years of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' Father has been in heaven and Jesus has been on earth. And yet, though Jesus has been away from his Father, he has enjoyed an amazing togetherness with his father at every step of his life on earth and his ministry. He says to his disciples, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? And his disciples would have to say, yes, that's obvious. We see that Lord. And so he goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So Jesus father is in heaven and Jesus has been on earth. And yet Jesus has been enjoying an enviably close relationship with his father. Jesus has been very much working in perfect harmony, in perfect sync with his father and revealing his father at every turn. And what has been true for Jesus will be true for his disciples after he goes away from them into heaven leaving them on earth to minister in Jesus' name so that they can labor on earth in relation to Jesus in the same sort of way that Jesus has been laboring on earth in relation to his Father. Does that make sense? What Jesus is saying here leads us And sets us up beautifully for the second truth that he gives to his disciples and to us to encourage us with a vision of the great days of ministry that lie ahead of us and that lay ahead of Jesus' disciples. Number two, 
Jesus essentially says to them, believers in me will do my works and even greater because I go to my Father. Believers in me will do my works and even greater because I go to my Father. Observe what Jesus says in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Notice here that Jesus is not limiting his promise here to merely the 11 disciples that he is speaking to. The promise he delivers here is to he who believes in me. How many of you believe in Jesus? Raise your hand. Okay, so what he's saying here includes you and Christians of every age. And Jesus is promising here that the person who believes in him will do the kinds of works that Jesus did, which revealed the Father. But Jesus goes beyond that promise and makes one of the most startling statements that he ever uttered that's recorded in the gospel accounts. And it's a statement about the person who believes in him. When he says, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my father. This is a head scratcher. In what sense will believers in Jesus' works be greater than the works of Jesus that he did when he was on the earth? Commentators wrestle with this prediction with this promise of Jesus and for good reason. Does Jesus mean by this statement that his disciples and those who believe in him will perform more spectacular physical miracles than Jesus did? I don't think that's what he meant for that has not happened though his disciples as we see in the New Testament did perform a number of miracles in Jesus' name. So what does Jesus mean when he utters this remarkable prediction? In what sense will the works of those who believe in Jesus be greater than what Jesus himself did when he was on the earth? Let me give you at least three things to include in your thinking as you answer this question. For one, our works are greater than Jesus' works geographically spreading out to the other nations of the world, whereas Jesus' works were limited to the land of Canaan during the years of his earthly ministry. Also, the disciples' works and our works also are greater than Jesus ethnically in that our ministry impacts and blesses people of all the nations directly, not just the Jews who were the primary recipients of Christ's ministry when he was on earth. Now, granted, Jesus did spend some time in Samaria in John chapter 4, and many came to believe in him there. There were also occasions when Jesus ministered to a Gentile here and there in the gospel accounts, but all of such moments were exceptions to the rule. Nonetheless, each of those moments were harbingers 
of greater things to come when Jesus' followers would go on to minister to the nations in Jesus' name in a fuller way and reaching greater numbers than Jesus reached when he was on earth. A third thing to think about, and this is perhaps the most important, is that Jesus' followers' works will be greater than Jesus in terms of their clarity and fullness. In fact, notice what Jesus says in verse 12. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. And that last statement there, because I go to my Father, is critical to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. How did Jesus go to his Father? Well, through the cross and through the grave and through his resurrection and then ascension to the Father's right hand where Jesus assumed his position of glory and power at the right hand of God. Through all of these stages, beginning with his suffering and death and culminating in his ascension to the right hand of God, Christ was glorified and revealed more thoroughly than ever for the Son of God and the Son of Man and the great I Am that he is opening up an age in which Christ could be seen with greater clarity than ever before, drawing people of every nation to himself. Let's not forget that during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, most people were left in doubt about the truth regarding Jesus. And even Jesus had to keep certain truths about himself in certain circumstances kind of on the down low because of all the misconceptions that people had about the Messiah. Even Jesus' brothers were frustrated with Jesus and urging him to show yourself to the world. Some people were left thinking that by God's grace uh, and believing that Jesus is truly the Messiah, but many weren't so sure. Even John the Baptist, deep into Jesus' ministry, had to send messengers to Jesus asking, are you the one or should we wait for another? Even the disciples who believed that Jesus was the Messiah didn't know what to make of Jesus on a number of occasions. And it was only in hindsight that they realized the full scope of what he was teaching and what all he came to do. Statements Jesus would make, and they're like, I don't have a clue what that means, but after his resurrection and ascension, they're like, I get it. I understand. It's all clear now. Here in John 14, Jesus is looking ahead to the days of his disciples' ministry following his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father when they will be able to preach Christ with clarity and power as the crucified and risen and ascended Lord of heaven and earth who sits at the right hand of God. Such ministry will be greater in terms of its clarity and fullness than what Christ 
did preceding his hour of glorification, his hour of suffering, and then his resurrection and ascension to the Father. Keep in mind that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is like an atom bomb that drops, and then it generates this mushroom cloud of revelation and clarity that Jesus' disciples and all of us now get to live inside of and rejoice in and make known to the world. This is at least a part of what Jesus is speaking of when he says to his disciples, you're going to do even greater works in terms of the clarity and the power and the ethnic reach and the geography, the expanse to which your ministry will go. Having said all of that, I think it's important for us to know that as we look at this prediction of Jesus, that when he tells us that we who believe in him will do greater works than these, the comparison here is not really so much between Jesus' works during his earthly ministry and our works. The comparison is really between Jesus' works during his earthly ministry and the works that Jesus will do through us after his ascension to the Father. That's why Jesus says, in greater works than these, he who believes in me will do because I go to the Father, which is the exalted position from which Jesus will do his great work in and through all those who believe in him. Now, this is a wonderful prediction, but how will we access the help of Jesus to engage in this kind of ministry for him while we are down here on earth and he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father? Well, this leads us to the third truth that Jesus gives to his disciples to encourage them with a vision of the great days of ministry ahead of them. Number three, let's word it this way. Jesus essentially is saying to them, I will do whatever you ask in my name to glorify my Father in me. I will do whatever you ask in my name in order to glorify my Father in me. Observe what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. As you look at Jesus' words here in these two verses, you, you notice that Jesus twice speaks of his disciples as praying or asking for things in Jesus' name. And that's something you must take note of. What does it mean to ask for something in Jesus' name? It means to ask for something that Jesus would ask for. It means to ask for things that serve to enhance his reputation and his fame and not our own. It means to ask for things that serve his agenda and not our own selfish agenda. It means to pray in his spot 
as it were. Over the past three years, the disciples have been watching Jesus pray to the Father and receive whatever he's asking from the Father. And there's a sense in which Jesus right now is telling his disciples that he's about to vacate that spot that he now wants his disciples to begin to fill so that they can assume his place and continue praying to the Father in his name, being governed by the same agenda that has been driving him in all that he has done and in all that he has prayed. And Jesus is promising his disciples that they will get the same kind of response from God that he himself has been receiving as they represent the agenda of Jesus before God in prayer. We get some direction in these verses regarding what Jesus expects us to pray for when he says, look at the text again, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what his language there teaches us is that Jesus will answer the prayers we pray that are number one in his name or in accordance with his agenda and that he will answer the prayers we pray, number two, that serve the Father's agenda of glorifying himself in his Son, serving the greater cause of the glory of God. If you're reading this text carefully, you will notice here that twice Jesus promises remarkably that it is he who will answer our prayers. Look at the text. He doesn't say that the Father will answer our requests, though that is true, and Jesus teaches this, that elsewhere. In this case, in verse 13, he says that I will do. And in verse 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do. I will do it. This is a most remarkable promise because it features Jesus as the one who answers the prayers that we pray, which makes his promise here one of the clearest claims to deity that we find in the Gospel of John. How can Jesus be claiming here to be anything less than God when he is promising here that he will do whatever we ask of God in prayer? In saying what he says here, Jesus is not denying that it's the Father who answers our prayers. He's assuring us that when the Father does answer our prayers, his answers to our prayers will be mediated to us through Jesus and will be performed as a perfect expression of the very heart of Jesus himself. Every answer to prayer from the Father has Jesus' thumbprints all over them. All things considered, Jesus wants his disciples and us to know that he isn't going away from them to his father's house to just sit around and do nothing. Not at all. He's going there partly so that he can be involved in hearing 
our prayers and responding to our prayers and doing those things that we are asking God for in his name, which means that our relationship with Jesus on this side of the cross and on this side of Christ's ascension is very much like what Jesus' relationship was to his father when Jesus was on earth. Now look again at Jesus' promise in verse 14. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some of you might prefer that the promise here would just read, if you ask me anything, I will do it. But then you see the words in my name and you think, oh, I see the fine print there. I was excited there for a moment thinking that I could pray and get whatever I might ask for. But now I see that I will only get what I ask for if I shrink my request down to only those things that are according to Christ's agenda. As if your will is the grandiose thing and the will of Christ is the puny thing. The truth is that what we would ask for in Jesus' name is far grander far more glorious than the puny things that we would selfishly ask for if we prayed only in our own name and according to our own selfish agenda, right? In fact, this invitation of Jesus to pray in his name is a call for us to get swept up away from our selfish agenda And to get caught up in the larger story of what God is doing in the world. To get caught up in the greater cause of Christ, which will endure forever. Rather than living our lives, serving our own petty kingdoms of me. For some of you, it might be a dream scenario if God gave you the promise that, hey, if you ask anything of me, for any reason, anything at all, I I will give you everything that you ask for. No qualification. Whatever you ask for, I promise you'll get it. Some of you would love that because you can think of a million things that you would ask for. But to be transparent with you, if that's what Jesus' promise was here, it would leave me afraid to ever ask God for anything anything for fear that I would ask for something ill-advised that would set in motion a chain of events that I would later come to realize with hindsight was ill-advised. If Christ said to me, Milton, whatever you ask God for, I promise you that you will get it. I would be left too paralyzed to pray and ask for anything My goodness, when I think back over the length of my life and the things that I have desired so greatly in given moments, I shudder at the damage that I would have brought upon the world if I could have just prayed in those moments and automatically got whatever I wanted and asked for. My point here is that we should be grateful for this qualification 
to our prayers, that they must be in Jesus' name. For it is this qualification that I believe frees us up to pray. Granted, this is a limiting provision because it rules out things that are not consistent with the agenda of Christ that we shouldn't want to happen anyway. But this is also an expanding provision because it delivers us from our world of self and it invites us into the massive heart of Jesus Christ and the infinite good that he is all about accomplishing in our lives and in this world. This provision should leave us feeling freed up to pray, knowing that God will sift through our prayers and give us those things that are befitting to Jesus' agenda and will truly give most glory to the Father in the Son. In fact, reading this promise from Jesus should cause all of us to ask God to teach us how to more fully pray in Jesus' name and according to his agenda. And we should read our Bibles in an effort to be students of the agenda of Christ for the ages. We got to go way deeper than just close our prayers with the magic words in Jesus' name. We got to know Jesus and understand his agenda, and we learn that from God's holy word. You want to pray in Jesus' name, be a student of Jesus' agenda revealed in God's word. Before I move on to the next point, I have to acknowledge that it is hard to read this promise from Jesus and not think about the times when we have sincerely prayed for things in Jesus' name and we did not receive what we asked for. Perhaps we prayed for the salvation of a loved one who, to our best knowledge, never got saved. Perhaps we are right now praying for God to deliver someone from bondage or to deliver them from some unjust circumstance. And the answer to those good prayers have not come. When we pray such prayers, we're making those requests in all honesty in Jesus' name. And we can easily imagine how Christ answering that prayer that we are praying would surely bring glory to himself and his Father. But it seems that God delays answering those prayers, those beautiful prayers. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of those delays. There's a whole lot of divine mystery here that we just simply have to trust the Lord with. I definitely don't have all the answers on this question, but I can tell you what I've experienced in my own life that helps at least address some of these situations. What I have often interpreted as delay from God 
to the prayers that I have prayed legitimately that clearly seem befitting to his name and his agenda. What I've interpreted as delay to answer those prayers has actually been God working in ways that are way more complex and beautiful than I at first would have imagined and would have even thought to ask for. For example, I may at first be praying for God to change some circumstance or change somebody else. But eventually I learned that Christ's agenda is bigger than that and that he desires to do more than simply change that person or that circumstance. I began to realize that he also wants to change and grow me. So over time, Christ takes me deeper into what praying in his name really entails. And over time, I find my prayers being enriched and becoming more specific. I find my prayers expanding and going deeper into the fullness of what it is that Christ is after. Eventually, I begin asking for other things consistent with Jesus' agenda that I wasn't even asking before. Many of you, I know, have experienced this in your own life. For example, a wife may be praying for God to change her husband. That's her request. In Jesus' name, change my husband, Lord. But before long, she is asking God to help her to see her own sins and repent of her own sins more thoroughly. And she's asking in Jesus' name now for those things. She begins asking Jesus in Jesus' name to give her the eyes to see the good things that are in her husband and to help her to be an encouragement to her husband with the good that is in him. She begins asking God to humble her so that from that position of humility, she might be able to forgive her husband for the wrongs that he has done and relate better to him with grace so that when she does speak the truth to him, she does so with humility and with truth and with grace. And as the days and the weeks roll by, her prayers mature and become more and more aligned with the broader range of what Christ is really up to in her and her husband's life. And then one day she looks at her prayer journal and she realizes that her prayers are much different and much fuller than they were at the start. She realizes that God has been up to far more than merely changing her husband. He has been changing her. And his changing of her started with expanding her awareness of the fullness of what praying in Jesus' name really entails. In fact, it is often true that the first miracle that God wants to perform in many situations is the miracle of taking us deeper into the fullness of praying in his name showing us more clearly and more fully that Christ's agenda is far more expansive and penetrating than what we might have thought at first. Because prayer in Jesus' name 
is not us trying to get God to respond to us. It is us responding to God. Prayer in Jesus' name is not us trying to access God. It is allowing God through Christ to access us. Prayer in Jesus' name is not us trying to get God to submit to our will. It is us submitting to God and allowing ourselves to get caught up in the will of Christ and the larger story of what he is doing in the world. And here in verse 13 and 14, Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is what their lives are going to be all about teaching them that they will be cooperating with God in his sovereign work on earth through this kind of praying that they will do in Jesus' name. All in all, Jesus promises his disciples that he will be responsive to their prayers in his name. But how does he want them to respond to him and to his will? Well, this leads us to the fourth truth that Jesus gives to his disciples to encourage them with a vision of the lifetime of ministry that lay ahead of them. Number four, he essentially says to them, you will show your love for me by keeping my commandments. You will show your love for me by keeping my commandments. Observe what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I honestly don't think that Jesus at this point has any question about whether or not his disciples loved him. He knows they love him, which is why they don't want him to go away from them. But here he is telling them the right thing to do with their love for him. And that is to keep his commandments. A good paraphrase of his words here would be, if you love me and I know that you do, You will go on keeping my commandments. More than anything, I think Jesus is uttering a prediction here about how his disciples will behave in the future after he is gone because of the fact that they love him and he knows that they love him. Yes, Peter will deny Christ three times on this very night. And yes, the disciples will all fall away from Jesus on this very night of massive failure for each of them. But because they love Jesus, Jesus is predicting here that they will rise from the ashes of their failure and they will keep his commandments. The beauty of this prediction from Jesus is that it reveals that when Jesus is looking upon his disciples right now on this very night of awful failure for them, Jesus does not merely see his disciples as they are on this night, but he sees what he's going to make of them on the road ahead as they rally from their failure and go on to keep his commandments with greater faithfulness. What commandments is Jesus predicting that his disciples will be keeping in the days to come? That's a question you would want to ask as you look at a passage like this. Is it some list, long list of do's and don'ts that they're going to have to memorize and measure themselves up against in the days to come? 
Well, think about it. What commandments has Jesus given to his disciples even in this chapter? He has commanded them not to let their hearts be troubled. In verse 1, he has commanded them to believe in God. And he has commanded them to believe also in him. In verse 1, he has commanded them in verse 11 saying, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. So a fundamental command of Jesus is to simply believe. To believe in the father and the son and to let your heart be made at rest through belief in the Father and the Son. How are those for commands? Also in the previous chapter, Jesus outright says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. So essentially... What are the commandments that Jesus is telling his disciples that they will be keeping since they love him? Well, they will believe in the father and they will believe in Jesus and allow their hearts to be made at rest through faith in the father and the son. And they will believe in his love for them and they will then love one another as he has loved them. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep these commandments of believing and finding your rest in me and relishing my love for you. And then out of the overflow of your experience of my love, love one another. This is the future that Jesus predicts for his disciples. Now, as wonderful as Jesus predictions in this passage are that Those who believe in him will do greater works than he did, and they will keep his commandments of believing in him and loving others as Jesus has loved them. As wonderful as these things are, we know that doing such things is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this leads us to the fifth and the final truth that we will look at This morning that Jesus gives his disciples to encourage them with a vision of the great days of ministry ahead of them. Let's word it this way. At my request, Jesus says, the father will give you the spirit of truth as your helper. At my request, the father will give you the spirit of truth as your helper. Observe what Jesus says in verse 16. And notice how we see the three members of the Trinity. I, that's Jesus, will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he, that other helper, may be with you forever. And that helper, Jesus identifies in the next verse as the spirit of truth. We have Father, Son, and Spirit right here in verses 16 and 17. Jesus is letting his disciples know that when he gets to the father's right hand after his death and resurrection and ascension, he will make a request of the father and ask the father to send these disciples another helper. And Jesus is promising here that the father will answer this request and send 
to them another helper who will be with them, look at the text, forever, meaning he won't be leaving them after three years. He won't leave them ever, good days or bad days. This helper will never ghost these disciples. He will always be with them forever. I love the fact that Jesus calls the Spirit here another helper. You know what that means? It means that if the Holy Spirit is another helper, that means that Jesus himself has been the disciples' helper up to this point. He has been the one who has come alongside of them to encourage them and to help them. And now here he is promising that the Father will send them yet another helper who will take over where Jesus left off. The word translated helper here speaks of someone who is called to someone's side as an advocate to help, to counsel, to encourage, or to minister aid, or to help shoulder a burden. This word speaks of someone who is fully for you and who gives you the help that you need. And Jesus here is assuring his disciples that this other helper will be with them in the same way that Jesus has been with them, helping them to do the works of ministry that they're going to do on the road ahead and helping them to keep his commandments to believe in him and to believe in the Father and to enjoy his love and to love one another out of the fullness of their experience of Christ's love. Who is this other helper that Jesus is promising that the Father will send? Look at verse 17. That is the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Jesus has just told them earlier in this chapter that he himself is the truth, but here he promises them that the Father will send them the Spirit of truth. In other words, the Spirit who points them at every turn to Jesus who is the truth, the spirit who teaches them what the truth is and who brings to their remembrance the truth that Jesus taught them in order to help them to walk in that truth and be speakers of that truth to others. This reception of the spirit of truth will be something uniquely enjoyed by the disciples who love Jesus and believe in him. Speaking about the spirit of truth, Jesus says at the end of verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. The world cannot receive the spirit because they they don't even recognize the spirit. And they don't recognize him because they don't see Jesus rightly. In fact, there were many when Jesus was on earth, who saw his miracles wrought by the power of the Spirit and said, you did that by the power of a demon, your demon possessed. They did not recognize the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God in Jesus. But Jesus says to his disciples in verse 17, but you know him because he abides with you and will be 
in you. Notice carefully the language there. The verb translated abides is present tense, which indicates that the spirit, Jesus says, is already abiding alongside of you. And the spirit definitely was abiding with them and alongside of them in the sense that he is inhabiting Jesus who is with them. But then Jesus uses the future tense and says that the spirit of truth will be in you. And the moment when the spirit will be poured out upon his disciples on the day of Pentecost. About 53 days from this very moment in John's gospel. When the disciples and the rest of the 120 will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and empowered through the filling of the Holy Spirit to walk in the truth of the gospel and to proclaim the truth about Christ throughout Jerusalem and throughout all of Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. We're going to stop here for today and contemplate just a couple thoughts as we wrap things up. Thankfully, every theme that Jesus has touched on in this passage, he's going to circle back to in the coming verses and chapters. So we will get to explore all of these themes in further depth in the coming weeks as we continue through John. But for now, I just I think it's a remarkable thing that Jesus is telling his disciples about their lifetime of ministry just hours before all of them are going to fall away and really mess up royally. They're all going to fall away. Peter's going to deny him three times. Miserable night of failure. But even before those failures that Jesus knows about and has even predicted, Jesus is talking about their future lifetime of wonderful ministry and prayer that lies ahead of them. And even their obedience to his commandments that lies ahead of them. Jesus wants them to know that he has a plan to use them and other broken people just like them to further his mission in the world, even to the point of entrusting them to do greater works than he did when he was on earth. And according to Jesus' words in this text, the people whom he will use in this way are simply those who believe in him. Not those who have never stumbled or fallen. Not those whose lives are perfect and feature no brokenness in whatever way. But Jesus gives this promise to those who simply believe in him. Those who in their desperation just keep looking to him and putting their trust in him rather than in themselves and crying out to him every day to be their Lord and their Savior and their helper. I think we can also appreciate as we ponder our passage this morning how much more clear our message is than what the disciples could have preached before Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. I would just give this to you as food for thought. Think about the difference, not just from New Testament from the Old Testament, but how clear and full our knowledge and preaching is 
compared to that of the disciples when Jesus was on the earth. Before his death, they could tell the world that, yeah, he's the Messiah. But they weren't even realizing that his messianic work would include his dying for the sins of the world. And then being raised from the dead and being ascended to the very right hand of the Father. They couldn't imagine the full depth at that point of Christian truth that would later be written in Ephesians and Romans and Hebrews and first and second Peter. Once the atom bomb of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension would fall and generate the fullness of clarity regarding Jesus and Christian truth that they would go on later to declare. But we know the details of this later revelation after Christ's hour of glory had come, which means that the message we preach to the lost and the message we preach to one another and to our own hearts is so much fuller and clearer than what even Jesus was able to preach before his death and resurrection and ascension. So let's cherish this era in which we live and savor the fullness of revelation that is ours to enjoy because of Christ's ultimate work of dying on the cross and being raised from the dead and ascended to his Father and giving us the Spirit who can help us to understand these things and to live in the good of them. The Trinity is all over what we have studied this morning. According to Jesus' words in our passage today, we have the Father that we can pray to. We have Jesus who is with the Father, who will participate with the Father in answering those prayers that we pray in Jesus' name. And we have the Holy Spirit who will be with us and in us to help us, empowering us to do the works of Christ and to keep his commandments as an expression of our love for him. You have, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've got the Trinity at your service. And if we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit at our service, then what do we ever need to fear from anyone or anything? Finally, I think it's noteworthy that in the very passage where Jesus talks about the works of ministry that those who believe in him will do in the days to come, he immediately, immediately brings up the subject of prayer teaching us that we who do those works are to also simultaneously be crying out to God in prayer, calling down the blessing of heaven upon our ministry of doing what it is that Christ saved us to do. Based on Jesus' words in our text today, we are to do the works that he did but we are to do those works in reliance upon him, knowing that they ultimately come from him, praying to the Father in his name and expecting the Father and the Son to answer our prayers and to do their works through us. And when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit do their works 
through us, we should be careful to give to the triune God all of the glory, just as Jesus was always so careful to give the Father the glory for all that the Father did in and through him. May God help us to be a working church and a praying church. And may God end up doing such a great work through us as a congregation that no one will ever accuse us of having done it. But they will know this is the work of God. And to him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good to give us uh, these few verses of wonderful revelation. Revelation that is not just encouraging, but even challenging in terms of the boldness of the predictions that Jesus makes about us who believe in him. Lord, I have to confess that even having studied this passage and preached it today, there's so much I, that I don't understand. But I'm thankful for what you've helped me to understand. I pray that you would take me and take us as a congregation deeper into the fullness of, of what, Jesus, you're trying to usher us into in these verses so that you might do your full good work in us as your people and live up to the destiny that you have determined for us that we would live as you have died and been raised and ascended to empower us to live so that you might have all the glory. Do great things in us and through us, Lord. And when you do, do one more thing. Give us the wherewithal to point the finger to you and give all praise and all glory to you alone. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.